Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Linux Downtime. I'm Joe and it's just me for the intro. This is part two of a chat with Molly White. So if you missed the first part, definitely go back and listen to episode 71 first. Before we get started, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to linuxdowntime.com slash support for details. And remember that if you support us on Patreon, there's various tiers to get advert-free RSS feeds. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at linuxdowntime.com. So without further ado, let's get back to Gary, Amleth, and me chatting with Molly White. So the Fediverse, Mastodon, that sort of thing, that seems to be so far delivering on the promise of true decentralization without any of this blockchain and crypto nonsense. I kind of am a little bit worried that it might get infected with it, but I'm really hopeful that it won't. What do you think is going to happen with that? Well, I do think that there have been attempts by the crypto community, the crypto industry, to try to sort of subsume a lot of decentralized web projects into the Web3 umbrella, which really irritates me (laughs) because I really love the decentralized web, the Fediverse, all these different things. And it feels like they're sort of taking credit for something that they didn't do, you know, like a lot of this stuff really predates a lot of the crypto stuff in a lot of ways. But so far, I haven't seen a ton of indication that crypto is going to try to take over the Fediverse or infect the Fediverse. Mm. There doesn't seem to be that much interest in it, which I think is maybe kind of telling in some ways around the crypto world that despite all the talk of decentralization, you know, if there's not a token involved, a lot of people in the crypto world just don't actually care that much. (laughs) And so, you know, I feel like there are far fewer crypto people on Mastodon than there are on Twitter, for example. A lot of these federated web communities, decentralized web communities, don't actually have that many blockchain people. It does depend on what circles you're in, though. I've seen some instances completely dedicated to cryptocurrencies. I've seen some projects that try to so deeply integrate cryptocurrencies that you can paywall your profile so no one else can see your posts until they pay you in whatever cryptocurrency that may be. And for the instances that have spun up around cryptocurrencies, they have been very quickly defederated from is one of the things that I've seen that's really nice. That's the beauty of the Fediverse, right? You can just totally block a whole instance, like with the, you know, the far right ones. We've been able to do that and just have nothing to do with them. And that's kind of part of the charm and promise of decentralization, right? Yeah, that's another thing I was going to say is that like the idea of Mastodon, for example, becoming totally infected with the crypto ethos is somewhat unlikely, I think, just in the sense that people who don't like it can just choose a different server that doesn't integrate crypto in any way, that doesn't federate with servers that are full of crypto people. And so it seems likely to me that, you know, there will always be some portion of the Fediverse that has no real crypto entanglements. And so far, it seems that it's been the majority rather than the minority. But I guess who's to say what the future will hold there? Can I ask you about central bank digital currencies, CBDCs? Is this something that you followed at all? It is, yeah. To me, it's ringing alarm bells. Not necessarily the same alarm bells, but, you know, this is centralized digital currencies that are controlled by governments. But it still seems like a bad idea to me. Yeah, that's largely my view as well. It's that it has 
alarm bells that are somewhat different from the cryptocurrency alarm bells, but still loud and in some cases louder, I think. Mm. A lot of the CBDC stuff really worries me because as soon as people start talking about like programmable money, they're talking about financial surveillance. And a lot of the financial surveillance that I hear people talking about is really, really frightening to think about. And, you know, I've been to blockchain conferences and things like that, where there are people who are actually, you know, involved in the policy side of things or involved in like the law enforcement side of things who are talking about CBDCs as this very exciting promise of blockchains. And, you know, I'm used to going to blockchain conferences where people are really excited about blockchains. But when I hear some of these policy government people get excited about blockchains because of CBDCs, it's really startling stuff because a lot of the time they're talking about how they can use this technology and this sort of new monetary format to really control people. And so it's like huge klaxons blaring, you know, in my head when I hear that kind of stuff, because, you know, the idea of basically preventing people from sending money to somebody, you know, through the technology itself or having enormous access to how people are transferring their money. You know, I mean, to some extent that's in place today where the government has a lot of access to your financial information, but, you know, ideally they still have to subpoena it, you know, or or gain access to it through legal means. Yeah, and you can go to an ATM, get cash out, and spend it totally privately. Right. Whereas CBDCs are surely a, a step along the road to a cashless society and everything that that entails. And people who don't have access to bank accounts or whatever, there's a lot of people who live day to day with cash. And, um, you know, I personally haven't used cash for a long time because it's just much more convenient to use contactless. But there are people who really need cash, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And I remember I was at one of these conferences and there was someone who was from a regulator, had previously worked at a regulator, I think, who said something like, you know, oh, well, if cash was invented today, we would have never allowed it. I'm like, yes, but I feel like that (laughs) says something about our system today and not something about cash, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that we really do need cash or, you know, some sort of digital analog to cash, I think would be amazing. But I don't think that that is what people envision when they're talking about CBDCs. They're not talking about digital cash. They're talking about, you know, a digital currency with a paper trail that the government can access and potentially, you know, a a very strong level of control around what you can do with that money and, and who you can send it to and how much and how frequently and so forth. Is that not the one slightly legitimate argument for cryptocurrencies, though, that they could be digital cash? I don't think they can. You know, I think that true digital cash, if it were to be possible and achieved, would have no real record behind it as far as where transactions were coming and going from. And I think ideally it would have some of the qualities of cash that allow it to be used today in ways that don't necessarily enable like wide scale money laundering or criminal activity. (laughs) You know, just the fact that it is physically challenging to move huge amounts of cash from point A to point B Mm. is actually really useful. And that doesn't exist with cryptocurrencies, which is why they've become so popular. I mean, it's among the reasons why they've become so popular for ransomware and various other forms of cybercrime. 
you know, I think a digital analog where you could actually have some cache-like quality of, you know, not necessarily surveilling people, but having some reasonable limit on how much money could go from point A to point B would be really exciting. There is a proposed policy to sort of research and try to develop something like that in the U.S. called the eCash Act, which I've been following with some interest. You know, I have some questions around the actual technical implementation of that, which I think is challenging, but that's what I would hope to see out of any digital currency. And that's much different than what people view CBDCs to be. I still don't understand how you can even try to make a cash-like system out of a cryptocurrency, right? Because a cryptocurrency has to always be auditable, right? You have to account for every transaction all along the way. Whereas cash is like, you take, like Joe said earlier, you take the money out of the ATM, you go spend it however you want. And at some point it makes it back to a bank, right? So then there's your two records and cryptocurrency, you have a record every step of the way. And so it's like, I mean, maybe somebody's got a, a novel way to solve that, but I, I don't know. I don't see it. <laughs> what about crypto tumblers? Is that uh, the way to around that? That's basically just uh remailers back in the day with PGP, right? It sounds great on paper or even tour, right? It sounds great on paper, but once you can uh, like over time, you're going to find ways to break that and figure out where stuff goes. And like people can do that with Bitcoin to a certain extent too. It's not anonymous. It's just, there's no names tied to the transactions. It's pseudonymous. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I also think that just, you know, as far as usability, requiring everyone to basically launder their own money just to have like a base level of (laughs) privacy is just not really feasible. You know, ideally, you could have something where the average Joe, you know, could perform a transaction and enjoy some level of privacy. Whereas today, generally speaking, the lay people who are trying to use crypto are subjecting themselves to this enormous amount of scrutiny because they aren't aware or they aren't capable of hiding their transactions. Whereas, you know, people who do have more resources or more knowledge are able to obfuscate things to some extent. And I think that's kind of a really unpleasant system, you know, where it's sort of only the people who are very capable or very wealthy are able to enjoy even very basic levels of privacy at this point. I'm curious, do you all know what offline cash is? Have you heard of it? Is that the paper Bitcoin thing? Yes. Yeah. Offline dot cash. <laughs> They've come full circle. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> I was hoping maybe it was actually like an interesting project that someone had come up with, but no. <laughs> I'm hoping it's a joke because if it's not. Well, that's the danger with these things. They start out as a joke like Doge mm-hmm. and then suddenly it's actually worth, you know, at one point it was worth 50 plus cents or whatever, nearly a dollar, I think. I may have mined a lot of a joke coin at one point in time myself, <laughs> specifically Nyan coin, if anybody's curious. <laughs> and then the servers just fell down and, uh, you know, it was fun, but never made any money off of it, but that's fine. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Servermania. Go to servermania.com slash LDT to get 15% off dedicated servers recurring for life. Servermania has over two decades of experience building high-performance infrastructure hosting platforms for businesses globally. They offer a wide range of fully customizable dedicated cloud, co-location, and IP transit services, and free initial consultations. Servermania offers a 100% uptime SLA with some of the best bandwidth pricing in North America on network speeds of up to 20 gigabits per second in nine locations worldwide. With Servermania, every customer receives a dedicated account manager free 24-7 live chat and support with one of the quickest response times in the industry. 
So go to servermania.com slash LDT to find out why my friend Alan Jude has been a Servermania customer for over five years. Use the promo code LinuxDowntime to get 15% off dedicated servers recurring for life. That's servermania.com slash LDT and promo code LinuxDowntime. The hype around blockchain and crypto and NFTs seems to have died down now and seems to have been replaced with hype for something else, AI, machine learning. And there just seem to be so many parallels to me. That can't have escaped your attention, Molly. Definitely not. It's pretty startling to see sort of the exact same thing happen immediately after, you know, we just got through this crypto hype and now we're sort of bombs away with the next one. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think it's something that we just see a lot of in the tech industry where a lot of the innovation that happens in tech is bogged down with this crazy sort of marketing and myth-making around it that is really harmful, I think, ultimately to any good that the technology could potentially do because you have to end up separating the you know signal from the noise in a lot of cases. And a lot of the time, the noise really drowns out the signal, I think, which we're seeing a lot of in AI right now. With crypto, there wasn't that much signal, so it was kind of easy to, to differentiate. <laughs> but you do think there is more signal with AI then? You think there are useful implementations of it? Well, absolutely. I mean, we use it today already. We have been for years. You know, it's not like Mm. AI and machine learning just came to be this year. And, you know, it's a pretty low bar to say that there's more use case there than crypto. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I do think there is some use case there. But I think that a lot of what we're seeing now is, you know, how do we balance the positive potential of something like AI or machine learning with the negative externalities of it. And, you know, with crypto, it's pretty easy to take a stance on that because there wasn't a whole lot in the positive potential and there was a lot in the negative externalities. Whereas in AI and with machine learning, you know, it's variable, definitely, depending on what you're looking at. But, you know, there could be very strong positives for it. But I think the negatives are also potentially concerning. And I also think that the the negatives that we should be worrying about are very different from the ones that people tend to talk about because they're not the sort of Terminator fantasies that a lot of people end up falling into. Yeah, well, that's the uh, the kind of easy story to tell in the media. You know, these things are going to take over. But if you have even the most basic understanding of how they work, that's very unlikely. The idea of a, a general artificial intelligence just seems to be just way, way off. But yeah, there are, I mean, already we're seeing dangerous stuff with deep fakes and, and so, you know, this is, I read a headline, this is going to be the first deep fake presidential election, essentially. And what, what does it mean for democracy? And those are the questions that people should be asking, not when Skynet going to happen. Right. I agree. And I think also questions just around labor when it comes to AI, you know, I don't think there are necessarily as many concerns as a lot of the AI companies would like you to have around, oh, AI is going to take all of our jobs. But I do think there are concerns about the level to which AI could sort of enable corporate surveillance or mistreatment of workers, make it difficult for workers to obtain the same, you know, pay and rights that they should be getting. (laughs) And so, you know, I think there are a lot of those questions, too, that really need to be considered as we see more employers start to integrate this stuff into their companies because the idea that every job is going to be replaced by an AI is not particularly reasonable. But the idea that, you know, your work life could become a lot less pleasant, I think, is is pretty likely, honestly. 
now that you mentioned that, I'm realizing too how you could use uh, machine learning to basically turn your workplace into a surveillance state too, right? So like you could just have microphones monitoring keyboards and listening for a specific tone and you can figure out what somebody's typing on their keyboard. The repercussions of that are just insane, but that seems to be the path we're going down for better or worse. <laughs> I think corporate surveillance has really become an issue, you know, fairly recently where people are being surveilled by these, you know, so-called productivity monitoring tools. There are industries out there that are basically entirely surveilled, like trucking, for example, is, you know, there's an enormous amount happening there. And it's all in the name of efficiency and, you know, making sure that your workers aren't slacking off and stuff like that. But it ends up really affecting the quality of life for these workers a lot of the time. And it's difficult to fight back against a lot of that stuff, I think. Well, yeah, the whole work from home change that happened with COVID, that was supposed to improve our lives or you know one of the benefits of it was the lack of commute and everything but as you say with these surveillance tools that a lot of companies are forcing people to install on their computers they would be better off being in the office probably than being at home and being surveilled 24 7. Yeah and I think that I mean although some of these surveillance tools don't necessarily require AI to be effective the widespread rollout of them to some extent does because, you know, if, if you don't have the sort of AI systems in place, then you have to have someone watching all of this surveillance data to some extent. Whereas a lot of the work that's happening recently, I think in machine learning and AI is around, you know, okay, now we can broadly roll out this surveillance technology and surveil these employees, you know, at a very large scale without having the same number of managers all watching, you know, every little piece of their work day because the computers can just do it now. That's what really worries me because, you know, the surveillance technology isn't necessarily new, but the ways that that data can be sort of munged and, you know, rolled out at scale is becoming more and more accessible. One of the things that really scares me about the whole thing is that these large language models cannot understand the way humans do. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand the inputs or the outputs or anything like that. In January, an AI model called Kata Go was beaten by an amateur. Go is, for those that don't know, Go is one of the oldest continuously played board games in the world. It, it was like back in ancient China or something. And a few years ago, an AI was able to beat the best human player. In January, the best AI model was beaten by an amateur researcher. What they were doing was just like poking around at vulnerabilities in this model. And they found that the model doesn't understand the concept of a group, which is one of the, the core concepts of the game. So they just exploited that it can't understand that concept and they trivially beat it. I think it was greater than 90% win lose rate. So. They don't understand anything. They can't be trusted to make decisions that a human should. Yeah, and I think a lot of the risk also is that people ascribe a lot of responsibility and sort of thinking to the models. And, you know, as soon as there's a mismatch between what something does and what someone believes it does, I think you run into a lot of these problems where people start expecting things of it that are really not reasonable. You know, they expect them to produce truthful statements, for example, not just sort of statistically likely statements. One of my concerns is creative works being sucked up into these models and then kind of being spat back out again. Not necessarily verbatim, but certainly um, in a way that 
could put people out of work in, in the creative industry using work that they've done in the first place. And that just doesn't seem fair to me. Yeah, I mean, I think the question around copyright and, you know, creative rights when it comes to AI and a lot of this generative AI stuff that is just taking in these huge sort of corpuses of data and then spitting out sort of versions of them in some way, you know, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions there. And I think that the outcomes for creatives could be really scary. And just the sort of impact that it has on people's rights as far as what they post online. You know, as someone who cares a lot about the open access movement and, you know, open knowledge, it it doesn't feel great that so much of my labor, you know, on Wikipedia, for example, is being used to power all of these AI models. It's not like when I signed up to write Wikipedia articles, I was like, yes, please, you know, train your models off my data. But, you know, because it's all published with, you know, an open license and that type of thing, then, you know, they're able to do that. And and to some extent, I think it doesn't really matter if it's published with an open license or not, you know, that a lot of these companies are just taking all the data that they can, regardless of whether or not anyone's consented to it. So I think as a society, you know, there's sort of a reckoning that needs to happen around the data that's being used, whether or not people have consented to its use, and, you know, what ownership means when it comes to the actual products that are being spit out of these models. You raised an interesting point there about consent for them being used. So like GitHub Copilot, for example, my my code's not on GitHub for my own personal reasons, but people have put it there. And Microsoft used the existence of code on GitHub to be that person giving consent for it to be used in GitHub Copilot. The open licenses allow that to be exploited. So like the companies themselves have to do a better job of figuring out what that consent actually is, because what they're doing right now is easily worked around. Well, the companies are not going to do it themselves, right? We need some sort of legislation, surely. Of course. I'm very conflicted about Copilot because I think the way Copilot was trained is unethical as a baseline. I, I don't think that can be argued. And I think... With like GPL and AGPL, I think copyleft licenses as a whole, I think it likely violates those, but we won't know until that's litigated in a court somewhere. That said, I use it every day. It's extremely useful and extremely <laughs> helpful. I hate to sound like a, one of those stupid productivity people who are always talking about boosts in productivity, but it has genuinely helped. That's a hard conflict to get by. I disagree with how this thing was created. But holy hell, the thing is useful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be a conflict that comes up a lot when it comes to this AI stuff, you know, just in general, is that a lot of AI tools are really useful. You know, if if you look at some of the machine translation stuff that happens, for example, like that is just extremely useful. And a lot of it is a lot better than the types of translations that were available before. But, you know, if the data is collected unethically, if there is labor being put into this that is very unethically sourced and, you know, being maintained unethically, then, you know, I think there still needs to be some solution to that. I don't think that necessarily the means uh, or the ends should justify the means in a lot of cases. And I also think that it, it is possible to ethically create useful AI tools. And so, you know, the solution should be to, you know, ensure that, companies are doing so and, and providing enforcement and, and consequences when they aren't. Well, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you, Molly. If people want to find out more about what you're doing, where should they go and find you? You can find me at mollywhite.net. Everything else links from there. So that's the, that's the source of truth. 
Okay, cool. Well, I'll put a link to that in the show notes then. And uh, I might put your Mastodon on there as well. You're pretty active on there, seemingly. Yeah, yeah, I love Mastodon. Yeah, cool. Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until then, I've been Joe. Been Gary. I've been Amalith. And I've been Molly. See you later.